how did this not lead to confusion in your real life? Like you're, you're outside of the computer world where you're like, I created whales. And they're like, you, you didn't create the country, bud. <laughs> like they didn't get confused. There's a lot of confusion in my life, John. They probably don't think he means he's created the country whales. That probably isn't the... I mean, if he's out at the bar or something and he's, he's like, yeah, yeah I made enough. this whales. They're like, uh, this guy's just had too many. Let him be. <laughs> Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode cloud servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean, Droplets, Managed Kubernetes, Managed Databases, Spaces, Object Storage, Volume Block Storage, Advanced Networking like Virtual Private Clouds and Cloud Firewalls, Developer Tooling with a Robust API and CLI to make sure you can interact with your infrastructure the way you want to. DigitalOcean is designed for developers and built for businesses. Join over 150,000 businesses that develop, manage, and scale their applications with DigitalOcean. Head to do.co slash changelog to get started with a $100 credit. Again, do.co slash changelog. Let's do it. It's go time. Welcome to Go Time, your source for diverse discussions from around the Go community. Next week on the pod, security is back in focus as Matt welcomes Katie Hawkman, Roberto Clapis, and Filippo Valsorda to the show for a deep dive on fuzzing and a close look at the official fuzzing proposal for Go. Subscribe now if you haven't already at changelaw.com slash go time or your favorite podcast app. Okay, here we go. Hello and welcome to Go Time. I'm Matt Riot. About six months ago, or I suppose three months if you listen to this on two times speed, we chatted with Ilias about Geo, which is a way to draw graphical interfaces and build desktop apps in Go. And there's also the Fine project, which gives you tools to build native UIs, um, but they kind of have a different thing to learn in order to get to use them. So we're going to look today at an alternative approach, which probably will use a lot of existing skills that are already around, which is where we can mix the desktop and web technologies using the Wales project. That's what we're going to talk about today. Joining me on this quest, John Calhoun. Hello, John. Hey, Matt. How are you? I'm good, mate. Are you, are you getting all your jobs done that you were telling me about? I think I have most things done that I need to oh, for today. Oh, you're so good. Yeah makes me feel bad because i've achieved very little today and joining us also only the creator of wales lee anthony hello lee good morning afternoon and evening <laughs> welcome to go time thanks for joining us thanks for having me well it's a pleasure so maybe we could just get start at the beginning when we talk about desktop apps in go what do we mean and why is it such an interesting subject compared to other types of things that you can build in go I think originally, um, when I first sort of started with Go, I mean, I, I went along the same path as everybody else, um, you know, making CLI apps, um, making servers. I'd come from a, a, a node world at the time. And so I was kind of doing similar things um, on the back end. And kind of one of the things that I thought about when I was learning Go was 
you know, how can I make visual things? I love visual things. So the obvious thing to do there is to, to create a server and to hook up your browser to it and, and, and to see things visually that way. I sort of went along that approach, uh, thought, what, what shall I do? Shall I make a, you know, what, what sort of application shall I make as a test? And I was using Restic um, at the time to do my backups. Um, and I thought, that's quite a good good idea. Like, it's fairly static. There's, you know, some information that you can get from the application. It didn't really have a good library. Um, I, I still don't think it does, actually. So there's a bit of, you know, shelling out and running code and trying to parse the output and all that stuff. But what I discovered pretty quickly was that what you could actually do through a web browser was, by its very nature, sort of fairly restricted. And I kind of wanted to still use all of that funky JavaScript stuff on the front end, all of the, you know, the nice libraries and, um, and tools that you could use to do visual stuff, but to hook it up to my Go application. And so, yeah, so like I said, I, was, I kind of hit that sort of sandbox restriction pretty quickly. And I thought, how can I marry the two things that I now really love, which is this amazing traditionally back-end language with a very rich ecosystem in, in front-end technologies. And yeah, that's where it kind of started. And I didn't really get my, my first break on that until I found the WebView project. And so that allows you to present web front-end using a single JavaScript, single HTML, single CSS. And I started looking at that and I thought, that's cool. Like that would be really great if I could combine this with, with Go. And they do allow you to do that. But there was a lot of sort of technical stuff you had to, to deal with, what message passing and, and all that stuff. And so that's really kind of like the birth of the project there. How do I make this easy for other people? And myself, obviously. Yeah, that's cool then. So the idea is you want to be able to use web technologies JavaScript, HTML, and even web frameworks. And I noticed that by default, I think Wales comes with React, right? Or is it Vue? Uh, it comes with both. So, ah. so one of the one of the key things to start with, and I know she said Rails then, right? And uh, and it is it is a play on words on that. I'd actually called it that for basically because I, I wanted this sort of scaffolding, quick scaffolding way of, of building up an application, and you know, Rails was the original to do that. Um, and so it was kind of a play on words, web view, Rails. And so it takes a kind of similar approach. It comes with a CLI. So you use that to scaffold out your, your project. It comes with a bunch of templates. So you can use Vue, React, Angular. There's a couple of Vue templates there that use Beautify to give you the material UI. And there's also like a vanilla JavaScript one you can use as well. Yeah, that's cool then. So because the point is you're going to serve those static assets essentially however whatever the front end technology is going to do to build essentially it's going to build a javascript a css maybe in some markup and then wales will serve that won't it into its own kind of front end which is web based is that that's correct yeah. yeah absolutely so the, there's essentially two parts to to your project there's your go part which is your your, your back end and then there's the the web front end and they're sort of fairly loosely coupled. The concerns of the front end is, is entirely yours. You, you can use whatever you want. At the end of the day, you basically compile down to your classic sort of disk directory and you have your bundles and you essentially end up with, you know, two or three assets. And the way that's sort of bound together is through basically the library that Go provides, uh, sorry, that Wales provides. You know, you create your application and then you 
as part of the creation of, of that object, of that struct, then you, you give it a link to your assets, essentially, and it will serve them. So the way that it does that is it's, um, it actually uses a, a packer. Originally, I used Markwaite's uh, packer, and then he deprecated it, and I was very upset. So I took on the challenge and, and wrote something fairly similar, because I, I really like the way it worked. And they're essentially just strings. Like you just pass strings to the object and uh, takes those and serves those. And so that the, the reason you do that then is so that when you ship the app, you don't have to ship alongside it those assets. You get to they get bundled inside because of a build step inside the binary, don't they? That's absolutely right. Yeah. 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 So you still only have to ship one thing. That's correct. There's no extra thing that that you have to supply with it. Mm-hmm. It also uses, I mean, the WebView framework uses the web renderer that sits on your system. So you don't need to, to supply that. And, and there's pros and cons with that. So, yeah. Well, we can get into that. Um, so what, what sort of apps can you build with Wales then? So, I mean, that's like saying what kind of websites can you build? I mean, you can build. What kind of websites can you build? <laughs> I guess one of the key targets for this application would be somebody who wants the sort of power of Go. So, you know, somebody who wants to perhaps do low-level stuff, USB stuff. Got a couple of projects that deal with, um, I noticed that are, are working in the cryptocurrency space. So there's a lot of sort of processing that happens. And it's for people who want to just present that sort of stuff visually, where you perhaps, you know, otherwise you you know, you maybe use a web browser to connect to, but that's kind of feel quite right. And it's something that you, you want to interact with in real time, but still have that power of going. So that's really your, your target. There's, um, there's a keyboard company in Japan called Ergo Docs Easy. They create these, these amazing keyboards, you know, the ones that have like a million different parts and are super ergonomic. And one of their main developers contacted me a while back, and he was using WebView to do their firmware flushing. And so he's recently ported their application called Wally, which is their firmware flusher to, for their for the keyboards. He's ported it over to Wales. I've worked pretty closely with him. I didn't really have to do much. He gave me some great feedback. And um, yeah, I was really sort of happy about that because it, it really shows the, the kind of depth of, of application you could do. Yeah, it's interesting because we do think of Go a lot running as a server with HTTP interfaces and things. And so when you start to then think, well, now this is going to be running in its entirety on a single machine, you know, for a person that's running it in the desktop context. Uh, and it's kind of a, a different way of thinking in some ways, aren't there? But does it end up being quite similar because you have this front end that's communicating somehow with the back end through some kind of procedure calls, isn't it? Like remote procedure calls. That becomes the way that the, the back end and the front end communicate. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. The difference is, is that that mechanism there, and this was a key part of the design of, of the project, that mechanism for communication is completely hidden from you. So instead of having to worry about messages, um, requests, parameters, all that sort of stuff, you actually just call functions. So there is a, the IPC mechanism, the way that it works is that you, you essentially bind Go functions or struct methods to your application. And they get presented at the front end through um, a JavaScript endpoint. So 
it will be you know windows dot backend dot and then it will be a package name because you have to qualify your the methods and your structs and then just the name of your name of the go method that you found that receives you know parameters that would be sent through to your backend code your backend code to run and the result of that would be sent back to javascript and that mapping was pretty interesting and the way that it was done was through promises so what it sort of figured out early on was that, that if you had a go method that returned a value and an error that's essentially the same as a promise and so what happens is, is if you send a value back and the, and the error is null, then the promise results. If you send an error back, then the promise rejects. And so you're able to easily deal with the backend calling the backend code as if it's sort of part of your application, you know, which it is obviously, but part of your front end application. Yeah. So does it preserve types as well then? If you're passing strings and integers, can you call them in your JavaScript code using those types and they turn up as those types in the Go side? Going from, an, yeah, yes, is the answer, pretty much. It mostly does type conversions. I use one of the sort of low-level Go functions to, to do that type conversion. So on the whole, yes. Um, structs appear as JSON in JavaScript. If you send structs down to, to Go, they, they appear as sort of a, a standard map string interface it can be tricky but it, it deals with the, the 90 percent case 95 percent case so that's kind of handy yeah that's so cool how does it do that then how does like from the user's point of view you're just calling javascript asynchronous functions and there's promise returned and then you they either resolve or, you, or they get rejected so that makes sense from that point of view but how does it actually communicate between the the web component the web view component and the Go code. What's the mechanism that that's being used to make that work? So web views provide um, the ability to to call native functions. So you, you can set up an endpoint in web view. It's uh, window external invoke, um, and whatever you pass to that ends up um, on the on the listening end. So that method actually, what I had to do early on was to to kind of wrap that and, and, and to provide what you say like a, an IPC mechanism, and I chose to use JSON messages to so capture that information. You know, am I making a function call or am I trying to log? Am I trying to use the runtime? So I've got a bunch of standard messages. They get sent through that mechanism where I have a, a, a listener in Go. It's sort of dispatcher, receives the message, works out what kind it is, and then sends it to a various subsystem based on the need. Once that's processed, um, the same thing happens, but in, in reverse. So when you're building things like this, what types of limitations, I guess, do you see compared to, like, a lot of times when you see a big company and they're going to build something for Windows or for, you know, for Mac OS, they go out and look at, you know, .NET or they look at, I guess, Swift and, you know, Xcode and all those tools. Presumably with this, there are some limitations or, I mean, maybe there's not as far as, like, what you can do with the system, but, you know, like, what sort of, have you noticed any limitations or things like that that, like that would cause somebody to lean towards like going with Xcode and, and Swift versus this, or, you know, like what types of projects, I guess, would you see going each way? Yeah, I guess it just depends on the individual project. I mean, the difference between running an application in, in native UI versus an application in a browser versus an application in, in a web view, which is even more limited than a, than a browser, you're going to hit some limitations somewhere based on the use case. 
the obvious one is you know complexity on a on a native UI perspective. How do I make that work on different platforms? There are some approaches that you can you can take to do that. When you do a server app, obviously you have that disconnect between between the front end and the back end. Uh, and in a browser as well, you, you have things like local storage, which you don't actually have in a web view. And so the, the limitation I'd say of writing a Wales app would be twofold. One is it isn't a full browser, which makes it good, like in a way, like it's slimline, it's you know very good with, with resources. But you also don't necessarily know which libraries would, would necessarily work. So if you have, you know, there are so many libraries out there. If you use one that uses something that's native to a browser, then you're going to hit that limitation. That's one. The other one would be that Wales uses the native renderer on your system. So there's pros and cons of that. The con is that on Windows, it's still um, basically IE11. So you'd have to deal with, with that. And there's a lot of libraries that kind of get around. I've not really hit that problem, but some people do. So... That's just something. It yeah. probably would have been more of a problem in the past, like IE6 right. was around, for example, when you had to basically write two versions of every website. You have like two right. CSS files. It's like here's for you people in IE, and here's for everybody yeah. else. Yeah, here's for all the cool people, and then eighty percent of the population of the planet is using IE6, so we still have to support that. Yeah, that's right. But Lee, you mentioned something interesting about multiple platforms. That's something we should actually, I think, highlight a little bit because. You literally can build, you know, one front end and you've got your Go code. And since Go code can be built for different targets, you can build this, you can build Wales apps for different architectures, Windows, Mac OS and others. And it's the same code for all of them, right? That's absolutely correct. Yep. See, that's pretty massive. Yeah, that is. Until fairly recently, the limitation around that was that you could only build the platform that you were actually compiling it on. And there's, there's a couple of reasons for that. I mean, it uses Go, so you have that complication. But fairly recently, we, we had an amazing contribution to the project, which allowed you to cross-compile using Docker. You know, a big thanks to uh, Travis as well, who works on the project. He spent quite a lot of time in, in getting that working really, really well. Is that Travis CI? Uh, <laughs> Travis McLean, listen, he, Travis. he works on the project. Um, All right. Yeah, he managed to sort of iron it out a bit, polish it off, and it works really, really well. You have your initial kind of XGO download, um, which is, you know, fairly, fairly large. It's, it's around seven gigs, which to some people is a lot. Some others it isn't. Um, but once you have it, yeah, you can, you can compile multiple platform targets on, on the same computer. So. And speaking of Travis CI, I mean, you could probably easily build that into a continuous integration environment and have your build system build and deploy these apps, right? Using that. Image. Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the things that moving forward, I, I wouldn't mind having a look at Go Releaser and, and seeing how I could integrate with that. How you mm. could, you know, because because that seems like a really good fit. Yeah, I used that recently actually, and it was really good. Basically, you tag your repo with a semver semantic versioning tag, and then you just run Go Releaser, and yeah, it creates a release, uploads it to GitHub for you, writes the change log. And there's a lot more you can make it do, but by default, it sort of does do that. It would be great, yeah, something like that. But the nice thing, I think, that makes this a really cool project is that it's however you build it, it's one code base that's running everywhere. So you can really get say a big saving. And you know, if you think about all the things you can do in Go code, 
like accessing the file system. Presumably, you can access the file system in Wales apps, right? Absolutely. You can do whatever you would like to do on your, on your Go site. Um, there's no limitations on that. What I have done is provided a runtime which operates both in the JavaScript land on the Go and the Go land. So some of that stuff's wrapped up for you. So, you know, maybe you want to show a file select dialog. So you can call this um, runtime command in yeah, Go and Wales version 2, which, which we'll talk about in a bit. Like you can also do that on the JavaScript line. So you can essentially call call a function, open a dialog, get the user to select something. And that just appears as a string in Go. So it's, it's almost like a synchronous operation in your Go mm. where you say, I want to get a, a file name. And it goes away and does it for you. Is it like a file? Do you get literally the file scheme on that when it turns up in Go then? And is it just a path to a local file? It's just a path to a local file. So, and then you can use open and just read it in. Mm, so it doesn't upload through the web view. You're just selecting the string. I see. Yeah, it's just a means of getting a string into Go. Mm. Yeah, I bet there's a, a big range of uh, different things that you can suddenly do, you know, which you wouldn't do probably in the server context. That's what I mean. It's quite exciting when you start to think of building desktop apps like this in Go. Are there any other sort of cool use cases that you've come across? In terms of actually the stuff that you can build or in terms of the mm. tooling that's provided so that you can build? Oh, e- either, yeah. <laughs> so one of the sort of things that I'm pretty proud of in the, uh, in the project is early on I realized that the IPC mechanism, the way that you communicate from the front end to the back end, it's not dissimilar to WebSockets. And so what I started thinking early on, because I want wanted the project to be very developer-focused. Like, how do I make it easy for the developer? And one of the things that I kind of hit early on was the integrated debugger and the tooling that comes with the web view is actually pretty limited you know, compared to the things that you're used to. So in Chrome, the dev tools are just incredible. And that's what people want to use. They want to use the things that, that they're used to. So what I did was to create a compile flag because... You don't compile using Go build, you use Wales build. And the reason for that is because there's a bunch of stuff that it needs to do, including like installing dependencies and packaging, all, all kinds of stuff. So I've wrapped that all up. And you can pass a flag which essentially creates a headless mode, headless version of your backend code, and sets up a, 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 an actual web server inside your code. What you can do then is if you, if you run, it tells you what command to run, you run the command and the front end gets served up by its native tools. So in Vue, I think it uses like Webpack Serve or one of these kind of uh, runners. The front end actually has some code that's injected into it, which connects to your backend code. So now you're running in the browser, but you're still connected to your backend. So you can open up the dev tools and you can start just calling your Go code from, from Chrome. And that becomes incredibly powerful because you can all of a sudden start using your, you know, your, your view tools, your, your React dev tools, all that kind of stuff. The drawback of that is people get used to things working in the browser. And so sometimes you get tickets raised that say, I don't understand. It works in serve mode, but it doesn't work in compile mode. And that's like a tricky line to walk because you do want to provide the best tooling. Mm. But you also know that it's not entirely 100% like for like it's pretty simple yeah it's kind of a trade-off yes yeah i see what you mean that's exactly it you know the web view is more limited 
And like you say, it comes from the operating system. So I guess on a Mac, it would be Safari, would it, essentially? It uses WebKit. Mm. All right, yeah. That, which Safari uses, doesn't it? That's right. Hmm. And you mentioned events then as well, and that's quite an interesting thing when we think about Go and we have channels and we have different ways of running things concurrently and communicating events. Can you also get those events to fire in the front end part of the app? Like, so something happens in the back end, maybe some, if it's going to walk the file system, it's going to take a long time. Maybe there's an event to say, ah, I've just completed how does that get into the front end? Good question, Matt. So as part of the runtime, there's a unified events system. So you have, on, on the go side, you have emit and you have on. Um, and it's the same in the front end too. And whenever you emit a message, you, you do it in the standard JavaScript way. Um, and it has a name and it has that optional data on with it. If you fire that from Go, you can read it in Go. And you can, you can trigger on it in, in JavaScript. And the reverse is true. So you could, say, have a JSON string or whatever kind of data. In the front end, you could emit an event by a name um, and receive that in Go. So it's, it was quite interesting early on, like thinking about the differences between that and a, and a call. So yeah, that sort of unified eventing really opens things up because early on, I, I hooked up is it Vegeta, Vegeta, GIF, GIF? I don't know how you say that. It's a sort of web load testing tool. It's, it's a library, essentially. And it's just a library. And I wanted to sort of put a front end to that as a test and work out how is this going to work? How do I visualize this that it's, that it's doing? Because it's obviously going to do a whole bunch of stuff in the background. How do I view that? And so you have the obvious thing of, you know, here's my URL and this is how long I want you to run and these many concurrent threads. And one of the things that the library did, and probably still does, is provide um, a callback. So like every, say, a thousand events, it, it just returns you some information. And in Go, that's a struct. So it's a struct with, you know, with, with, with all of that information. And what it did was it basically spawned that off in a, in a Go routine. So you have that running in the background. And every thousand requests or whatever, you get this, this struct. And all I did was just emit it. So I just passed the struct into an emit call. On the front end, I had a, a listener. And when it received that information, initially I just printed it out on the console. What was amazing was because the developers had put JSON tags in their struct, all of a sudden I had this really rich JSON object with all of this information. In. And because these days components are very much driven by JSON state, you can just pop that straight into a state store and all of a sudden your front end reacts to everything that's happening in your go library. And that blew my mind. I've got to say, it was mm. just incredible to see. Yeah. Cause you haven't had to do much work at all there for that quite powerful thing, event driven live updates occurring in your desktop app. That's right. It is quite exciting. What 
What's up, gophers? Are you looking for a way to instantly debug and troubleshoot your applications and services running in production on Kubernetes? That's a mouthful. Well, Pixie gives you a magical API to get instant debug data. And the best part is this doesn't involve changing code. There are no manual UIs and all this lives inside Kubernetes. Pixie is an API which lives inside your platform, harvests all of your data that you need, and exposes a bunch of interfaces that you can ping to get data you need. Pixie is essentially like a decentralized Splunk. It's a programmable edge intelligence platform which captures metrics, traces, logs, and events without any code changes. And the team behind Pixie is working hard to bring it to market for broad use by the end of 2020, but I'm here to tell you how you can get your hands on the beta today. Links are in the show notes, so check them out so you can click through to the beta and their Slack community. Once again, links from the show notes, check them out and look forward to Pixie Day coming soon. So as you were developing all this, I mean, it sounds like you had to come up with a lot of unique solutions to like allow the two to communicate and allow things to work the way that makes the most sense. With things like WebAssembly coming along, do you think they would eventually make it so that this type of stuff would be easier to do in like almost any language or, or are there still going to be big limitations? Yeah, I don't really know too much about WebAssembly, I've got to say. Um, I followed its, uh, its journey in the early days, but I don't really know how it would uh, impact things. I'm, I'm pretty excited that you know, that the technology exists. I think it's going to be great. Part of my brain thinks we're sort of going back to the flash days as well. I don't really know why, but there's something in my head about that. But I do think it's, it's a great opportunity. And um, yeah, like the, in terms of the impact, I genuinely don't know. Yeah, I think we're likely to see more and more WebAssembly targets, um, assemblies, drive desktop applications. Like it kind of makes sense. And maybe this is, you know, this project is kind of a stepping stone towards that, you know, that sort of concept of you write once and, and run many, which is something that we've always tried to, tried to achieve in different ways. Yeah, I should definitely say I don't know a lot about WebAssembly, but like the idea of, you know, write it, compile it into JavaScript, I guess, and run it at wherever, like that's appealing in the sense that, you know, if I can just write regular code and it works, that that's real nice. And like, we're all spoiled with Go because it works pretty much everywhere. But, you know, when you have languages where that doesn't work or anybody who's tried to ship like a product that they wrote in Python or, you know, some other language and they, you know, you ship it to somebody and they're like, well, it's not working. It's because their Mac OS has like a really old version of Python or something. And it's like, how do you handle these situations? And I think that was one of the things that always made delivering like any sort of software to a desktop user that wasn't written in their native language was just could be a nightmare. Yeah, that's right. So I'm assuming this is like sort of similar to like how Electron works, but I don't know enough about Electron to say for sure. Is it comparable in some ways? Many people do draw that comparison, and I'm very, very reluctant to draw that comparison. I would say that the two projects are are different, right? They've got different target audiences. They kind of work a bit differently. The only kind of overlap is that they essentially achieve a similar thing, which is a desktop application with with web technologies. That's pretty much where I draw the, draw the comparison there. Okay. So, like, do you know enough about Electron that I can ask questions to sort of, you know, flesh out some of those differences? Yeah, sure. I know, I know a little bit. But I'm <laughs> definitely not the world's expert on it. So, is, is Electron using WebViews? No, it 
uses an embedded Chrome instance. Okay, so it uses something entirely different. So that would be like one of those cases where it works on Chrome, but like it could solve that type of problem, but it probably comes with its own set of like challenges. Resources mainly. Okay. Uses a lot of resources. Okay, so from that point of view, it's like not even like we start to step away. It's not even using web views. It's just something built entirely differently. Yeah, so it's it's almost like bundling Chrome with your application where Chrome only executes your code, is my understanding. But it's also like it gives you a, a very easy one single target problem. So as long as it works in Chrome, you're good. So when you're running in WebView then, I assume you have the JavaScript running there. Do you run into some other limitations like with browsers? Like one of the ones that comes to mind is like cross-origin resource sharing. Like if you use the JavaScript to actually talk with an API for some reason, which might not make sense with Wales, but I guess might be possible. Not really sure. Well, first off, is that possible? Yeah, I mean, like it's, it's kind of interesting because the front end and back end, they have similar ways of doing things. So, so you can make an HTTP request uh, from JavaScript, but you could also do it from Go. So you'd likely hit whatever limitation you'd hit on one end, you'd, you'd hit on the other the cross-origin, I don't think you have that problem. I'm pretty sure you don't because it's not really running as a server and it's not a browser that's going to guard you from that kind of thing. As I say, usually that's something browsers would, would prevent and I wasn't sure if WebView, like if that itself was like close enough to a browser that it had it or not. So I wasn't like quite sure. Yeah, um, I don't believe so. I think you're okay with that. Well, even if you couldn't though, you can always just make it on the go side and then call a function and yeah. probably that's how you'd want to do it anyway, I think, because I'd say, at least I would, because front end, back end does give you quite a nice boundary for testing. So it'd be a nice surface to test. If all your tests that were calling those public methods all passed, you'd have a level of confidence that the app itself's going to work too, I suppose. So I would probably do that anyway. I would put a lot, as much of the logic as I could into the Go side, just because that's where I'm more comfortable. But it does let you do things like that. You could just make HTTP calls. You could uh, make other kinds of connections that would be impossible in browsers too, right? I mean, you know, you could make bespoke binary protocol, you know, maybe some bespoke API or something, some service that you want to consume. You do kind of solve that by having this environment that is both Go running natively and and also this web concept running kind of right there too. You make a great distinction there, um, and it's it's one of the recommendations of the uh, of the project when you build your application. Like think about that your your state and your business logic really should be living in in Go, and your web front end really should just be a view on that. Which sometimes is a, is a concept that's different to people who have used a lot of web technology and uh, kind of dealing with state on the front end. The idea of the, the eventing system is really to, to keep those in, in sync. More as a, uh, you know, you should probably just take that approach of pushing the state rather than trying to deal with it in two places. I know that some projects do try and keep those in sync. And so, you know, you might end up in a kind of split brain situation. And yeah, my recommendation is you just don't, don't bother. Just, just push your state to the front end and, and react to your state on the front end in a, in a visual way. I think part of that might come from, like when you're building something with a web server, you have to worry about latency, especially if you have users who are in a low latency area. So they, you know, they try to kind of think, how can I keep this state and minimize some of that latency? Whereas with something like this, where you're both running on the same server, there realistically shouldn't be much, if any, latency at all. And the only way, like when I was thinking about people making JavaScript calls, I was sort of thinking somebody who 
maybe has the JavaScript app and they're like, can we make something that like, you know, self-hosted type version or something like that. And I could see them making that mistake of just trying to port the same thing over when the two approaches, while the U, like the UI might be similar, but like some of the how you do it might be something you'd want to change up. Yeah, that's right. So what about like a desktop icon? Is that how this binary looks? Because normally in Go, when you build a binary, you get a kind of default terminal looking application. And if you double click it, nothing happens. You have to kind of run it in a terminal. What's the asset you get after you've done Whale's build? So there's basically two build modes. There's, well, there's kind of two targets. There's, there's a sort of desktop application target, so a, a packaged version which has an icon and it's something you can double click and, uh, and run. And the other one's just kind of like your standard Go output, which is just a, a terminal app that you run. You, know, you mainly use that for development. Like on Windows, for instance, it's, uh, it's good to run that in, in that mode. Just so you can see, like the, the debug output and all that, all that kind of stuff. But Wells does come with the ability to to pack down to a, a package. So on Windows, that's essentially you know, it generates the manifest file. It generates uh, the different range of icons that you have, the different sizes into an icon file, and then it compiles that up into into the exe that you would expect from any other build tool. For Mac, it generates a .app. Directory structure creates the plist, generates the icons, and so sort of puts it together in a way that that works on a map. So you don't need to package it either. That kind of comes for free too. And of course, the assets are all embedded in the Go binary, so you don't have to even put the assets into that package either, do you? Absolutely. Yeah. So you mentioned that you have like the Whales build command, and you mentioned Packer, which I know from using it, you have to use like the Packer build command. So I assume the Whales build is in part to repl- you know, replicate that behavior of grab all the assets, turn them into byte slices or whatever, and stick them in the binary. Are there other things going on behind the scenes when you're running Whales build? Like, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So basically, all of the things that it does is essentially, it, there's, a, there's a project JSON file, which basically tells Whales how to build your project. So what command do I run to install my front-end dependencies? What command do I use to compile my front-end to the assets? Once it does those two commands, it then gets those assets, um, runs an external command, which, which is something that I, I created, um, and now wish I hadn't, uh, <laughs> which packs up those uh, assets and puts them inside a Go file, pretty much the way Packer works. It then compiles everything in Golang, including your packed assets, into a single binary. If you've decided to package it at that time, then it will then continue through and do a platform-specific packing. So on Windows, I think it uses WinRes to compile that down to a single binary. On the Mac side, it's it's a little bit more manual from a from a compile perspective in that it sort of just creates directories and, and puts things in various places. And that's pretty much pretty much what goes on. It's fairly customizable because the actual system assets that it generates, it comes with default manifest file for Windows. It comes with a default icon, for instance. Um, and it leaves those in your project directory once it's built. So if you change them, then, then that's your opportunity to customize your builds. So when you're embedding those assets, I know recently there was like an embed proposal for Go. Have you had a chance to check that out? Yeah, um, it's definitely something that that I wish had been there before I decided to try and make a packer. That would have been good. There's there's many solutions to this problem. So does that solution looks like it would solve your like solve the needs you have then? 
Yeah, I don't think there's too much involved in packing a binary asset into your application. So, I mean, it only does one thing. So, as long as it does that, then I think we're good. Yeah, I quite like the similarities. And Mark Bates was actually, or is working on a, uh, or was before this proposal, because this proposal may supersede it. But yeah, he's working on a new API that mirrored the OS package. So you basically open files and, you know, you can stat them and you use the proper, like the existing API, essentially a copy of it, except that it goes through this layer where they may be embedded in the binary and you sort of can't tell. And I think the Go Draft proposal, and we'll post notes in the show notes, we'll post a link to it. I think it has that same kind of idea, which is nice that you get to kind of, you know, use the learning you have already from existing APIs. That may well be cool. And the nice thing is, Wales could adopt that and upgrade that, and it, it almost wouldn't change anything for anybody, would it? It's almost an internal piece, which happens transparently, right? That's right. And it's one of those things as well, you know, the Go, pretty much the Go philosophy is, is that frameworks are frowned upon. And I guess I tend to agree, even though I'm, I've created a framework, I, I kind of tend to agree that it's... You frown upon it, even though you made it. Exactly, Yeah. <laughs> Do you do that with your kids as well? <laughs> <laughs> you made them, but you're like, yeah. yeah no, yeah. only with the band in the mirror. Yeah. <laughs> but there is a place for it, right? So yes, you know, I, I firmly believe in, you know, composition and, and, and having choices in that. So long as you're okay with the, the cost of that, which is you have to do the integration, you have to do the plumbing, you have to deal with the idiosyncrasies of, of all of the various components. And so whilst I've, you know, created this this framework and there there is some stuff that's hidden like the compiling of the assets and the bundling assets you do have to ask the question is do i care do i really want to deal with that stuff Mm. that's something that an individual has to decide right yeah absolutely and i think you're right sometimes it's if it's the right fit and i think you know what's been valuable about this conversation is talking about the sorts of problems that wales is going to be good for and i think there are a class of applications where and certainly i mean i i've built a an electron app you know i bought an extra ram and really wanted to put it through its paces so i just built a basic electron app yeah it was opinionated and it did these things and it was also it wasn't quite right wasn't what i was used to and so whales kind of fit that perfectly and so i think there is a sweet spot for whales that's why i'm glad we talked about this and got to kind of uh, hopefully get some people's eyes on it because some of the i mean the things you can build are kind of limitless really i mean it's web technologies i mean we can even create images in go you know using the image draw packages you can actually build images and things so you'd be able to do even that kind of visualizations and stuff for whales apps right so in a way it's extremely powerful and it doesn't do too much as well that's the other thing it solves kind of core problems and then not much else so as a developer you still have to solve those problems in the way that makes sense for your particular case or for the particular problems you're solving so i think it has a, it, it finds that nice sweet spot personally that's why I, I recommend people play with it and see what they can build it's very exciting because you know doing go you spend a lot of time in servers or in web contexts or building things that are quite abstract and you know to have something that's just an actual application, I think it's going to be quite nostalgic and quite fun for people that haven't done it before. Yeah. 
much time does your team spend building and maintaining internal tooling? I'm talking about those behind the scenes apps, the ones no one else sees, the S3 uploader you built last year for the marketing team, that quick Firebase admin panel that lets you monitor key KPIs, maybe even the tool your data science team hacked together so they could provide custom ad spend analytics. Now these are tools you need so you build them and that makes sense. But the question is, could you have built them in less time, with less effort, and less overhead and maintenance required? And the answer to that question is yes. That's where Retool comes in. Rohan Chopra, Engineering Director at DoorDash, has this to say about Retool. Quote, the tools we've been able to quickly build with Retool have allowed us to empower and scale our local operators, all while reducing the dependency on engineering, end quote. Now, the internal tooling process at DoorDash was bogged down with manual data entry, missed handoffs, and long turnaround times. And after integrating Retool, DoorDash was able to cut the engineering time required to build tools by a factor of 10x and eliminate the error-prone manual processes that plague their workflows. They were able to empower backend engineers who wouldn't otherwise be able to build front ends from scratch. And these engineers were able to build fully functional apps in Retool in hours, not days or weeks. Your next step is to try it free at retool.com slash changelog. Again, retool.com slash changelog. Time for Unpopular Opinion. I actually think you should probably leave. Okay, do we have any unpopular opinions? Spent some time thinking about what the difference was between unpopular and controversial. And I wasn't really sure where that line was. <laughs> okay. Well, I haven't got time to re-record the theme tune. So, but give us a controversial one if it's controversial. I mean, we've never had to cut one of these. So if you can give us one that we have to cut, even better. Controversial means that like at least maybe half the audience doesn't like it or they disagree with it in some way. Right. It's like popular by majority, I guess. Right. <laughs> well, okay. So I guess... Half the audience potentially does not think that. It can't be half. It's got to be more than half, isn't it, slightly? <laughs> just 51%. Can we just say the pedantic shoe is on the other foot? I mean, hand. Unpopular opinion. Well, it's sometimes okay to mix Go and JavaScript Go. Mm. Like, some people may think that that's not a great thing. I actually think that, you know, you use things to their strengths. So, like we said about frameworks. Like, I don't really have a problem with, with frameworks. I have a problem with frameworks that have opinions different to me. And I think that's the thing, isn't it? We, we all have our way of doing things. And I guess it's the thing I love about Go is it doesn't really give you too many hard rules that, that you have to adhere to. Yeah. So I guess my unpopular opinion is everything is okay in whatever context is okay in. <laughs> That's very nice. I was going to say, everybody loves Rails until it doesn't work for them. And then, then they hate it. It's that one time you need to configure something special, and it's like, no, we aren't going to let you do that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And it is, it is a trade-off, isn't it? And it's almost the universal thing that we face all the time of kind of 
optimizing for read or optimizing for write. You know, we, we choose a tool like Rails, we can quickly build with scaffolding, we can quickly build real things that are going to put things in the database. But then, of course, as soon as you want to do something different or something more or whatever, then, you know, you then have to put in the time to do that. And yeah, the problem is when you're fighting the framework, right? That's what I like about Wales is, you know, it doesn't force you to use a particular web technology. It's kind of um, somewhat agnostic. So your teams will get to use expertise they already have in order to then uh, build desktop apps. And I think that is quite a valuable thing in itself. But yeah, it seems like if it was more opinionated, of course, then there are going to be more cases where it hits up against things that it doesn't do naturally or doesn't do very well. Uh, so I, that's what I was saying. I think it has a nice nice little sweet spot. I think you've actually made me realize something. I've, I've completely missold this thing, haven't I? It's actually a tool. It's not really a framework because frameworks imply there's lots of opinion. And there isn't. It's really just a tool to compile things, to build things. Yeah, it's more of a developer tool. Interesting. It, a build tool is probably more accurate because like I, we, we talked about Fine, I think, last time we looked at GUIs. And like, it's a lot more opinionated, I think, like in how you, def like a button and thing like, I think all those things kind of look the same in that, if I recall correctly. And it has some basic, I guess, scaffolding you sort of use to build things like in the UI. And it gives you the ability to quickly throw something together and make it work on multiple operating systems. But like, there are limitations to that based on what they think things should look like and like, you know, what their version of a checkbox is or something. So, you know, it goes both ways. And I think yours is probably the, as far, like, as unopinionated as possible is probably is, is what I'd call whales. Mm. And tell us about the name, uh, because it happens to also sound like a country, doesn't it? It does, man. It does. And do you know what? It's really funny. Do you know, sometimes you have a, a concept in your head and you, you think, oh, you know, my context for this thing is this. And at some point, it's something shifts and you're like, oh, my God, <laughs> How did I not think about that? And this is a classic example of that. It was actually called Wales, just WebView Rails. Like, that's all it was. No part of my brain at that time really associated with the actual country I'm from. Um, no idea why. <laughs> and then afterwards, I thought, okay, yeah, of course. That was probably there somewhere when I was naming this. And so when I was looking for a logo, I kind of developed one, which was a bit of a homage to, to the Welsh flag. So, yeah, there is a link there albeit unintentional. And if anybody doesn't know what the Welsh flag looks like, definitely Google it. It's one of it's it's definitely one of the best flags there is. Uh, it's essentially a a red dragon, which I think is really cool. And yeah, the Wales logo does in, does kind of uh, invoke that. So I think that's that's nice. And it's, it's nice to kind of see a, a personal link like this in a project. I think it's quite a cool thing. You don't see it too often. So how did this not lead to confusion in your real life, like you're, you're outside of the computer world, where you're like, yeah, I work on whales, and they're like, or I created whales, and they're like, you, you didn't create the country, bud. <laughs> like, they didn't get confused? There's a lot of confusion in my life, John. They probably don't think he means he's created the country whales. That probably isn't the... I mean, if he's out at the bar or something, and he's like, yeah, yeah I made enough. this whales, and they're like, uh, this guy's just had too many, let him be. <laughs> Because you don't live that you don't live there now, do you? You moved. I, I moved. I moved a long time ago. Yes. Oh. Yeah. And I miss it. It's um, there's, there's a wonderful word in Welsh called hiraith, which um, is is pretty much untranslatable in English, but it, it kind of means this longing for this nostalgic longing for for things that were. 
and um, any Welsh person listening to this will potentially understand what that is. Mm, that's awesome. Oh, I feel like we should get some more Welsh on the show because it sounds like, to people listening, I think it sounds like Elvish from Lord of the Rings. Like that, that's how I've heard people describe when they hear Welsh being spoken. That's like the close reference. The, the irony of that is that Elvish is a certain type of Elvish um, is actually based on Welsh. So that's why. Ah, that's why. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> makes way more sense now. <laughs> Tolkien was obsessed um, with the language, which is kind of interesting. But he's obsessed with languages in general. So. Yeah, yeah. He made the whole language, didn't he? he made he, didn't he make Elvish the language and actually did all the work to build it into a real language. Yeah, I think that was his primary thing. Like, that's what he really enjoyed doing. I don't, I don't know too much about it. did Lord of the Rings on the side. Uh, yeah. I'll pay the bills somehow. I'm making up these bonkers languages. No one's going <laughs> to use them. I've got to find a reason for people to use them. I'm going to have to write a, a six-part epic. That's it. This D&D genre is not going to invent itself, so... <laughs> yeah. Magic. He didn't, like, go the open-source route and be like, we're going to provide support for the language first. That didn't work. She so had to go some other route. <laughs> yeah, you had to build it into a, something you could sell. <laughs> I like talking about tools like this because I feel like there's a lot of potential in the learning space too for them, where when you build things and you're learning, the, the terminal is kind of bland for anybody who's you know, just getting into programming. But like if you can combine it with whales so that they actually see visually like what's happening in their code or you know, like it can actually help them out, I feel like there's a lot of ways that you could make learning a lot easier or at least different for different types of people who learn in different ways yeah you, you hit on a really good point there is that combining go code into your documentation or your um or your teaching material is you know is definitely possible i mean we, we know that that's possible already with sort of um the, the go docs um stuff but what this does is it actually allows you to embed components that are that are aware of go code one of the things i wondered about early on was this concept of a package, and it, it's something I'm still kind of fleshing out in, in my mind, that components historically are just JavaScript. But imagine if you could have a package which bundled your backend as well as your, your Go code, as well as your front end. So it's kind of Go-aware front end components. And so you're able to compose your Wales applications using people's different components and potentially have this concept of a, of a package manager where you, you can pull those in. I think it would lead to, to some pretty interesting projects. Mm. We'll have to save that one for another day, I think. Okay, well, that's all the time we have for today. Uh, thank you so much to Lee Anthony for joining us. Uh, if you want to build desktop apps with Go and web-based technologies, take a look at Wales. It's a genuine option, ready to go. It's past the v1 release it's it's production ready you can build real things with it so do it and then tell us what you've built please thank you very much john always a pleasure lee thanks for coming thanks for having me it's been great see you next time if you're not following GoTime on twitter let's fix that bug we tweet live show notifications, clips, and highlights from past episodes. We take polls about unpopular opinions and have a lot of fun. Join the conversation. We're at GoTimeFM. Also, Changelog++ is now a thing. It's the best way to directly support GoTime and everything we create for you here at Changelog. 
support our work, make the ads disappear, and get closer to the metal at changelog.com slash plus plus. The early adopter rate ends at the end of August. This episode was hosted by Matt Ryer and John Calhoun. It was produced by Jared Santo. That's me. And our music is provided by the Beat Freak, Breakmaster Cylinder. We're brought to you by some awesome people at companies who get it. Thanks again to Fastly, Linode, and Rollbar. That's all for now. Fuzzing next week.